0: CONVENTIONS ARE UPON US! YES! YES! I had a dream last night that Jimmy Carter was my college professor. And that he also had a Saturday morning cartoon show. And he had a cast of characters that were all sentient southern foods. The most popular character was Paul boy I am so jazzed for the Democratic National Convention. It begins tonight. Uh, uh, That is August 17th. It runs for the next four days. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I'm going to be there covering the prime time speakers. That is from 8 p.m. Eastern time to 10 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be on a little early. I'll stay a little late. You can find me at twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Download the Twitch app and follow Justin R Young you'll get alerts you'll be able to listen audio only if you only have uh you only like podcast stuff but here's my promise to you guys we're going to cover this unlike anybody has ever covered a convention in fact we are going to not only bring you the kind of exuberance that the PX3 show normally does yes of course you're going to get my insight but we're going to emanate these broadcasts from a place you've never been unless you are somebody very, very powerful. We are not going to watch this from the gallery. We're not gonna watch this from the living room. We're not going to watch this from press row. Friends, we are going to watch this in the room where the real decisions are made at conventions the smoky back room. You gotta see for yourself, folks. Twitch.tv slash Justin Young. See you there! The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Hello and welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. Man, I recorded, I recorded that intro on Monday for our our convention coverage, and I am already beat up. <laughs> you will tell the difference in the energy of my voice after watching just two nights of this convention. Uh, uh, we are going to go in. To uh, my thoughts on the convention, we're going to uh, go do a deep dive on this AOC controversy that popped up uh, last night on Twitter after AOC spoke at the convention. And we are going to have an interview away from the party business about evictions Uh, There indeed is a looming evictions crisis here in America. We had a a tremendous sudden uh, uh, economic disruption. Uh, The economy is still in a very, very weird place. People haven't, can't, or uh, are not going back to work, which means that there's a lot of people that uh, are are facing some real, real problems. We're going to get a sense of exactly how pervasive a problem it is and how much of a cliff we are running toward.
1: But first. The Democratic Party has always risen to our country's greatest challenges.
0: I pledge myself to a new deal for the
1: American people. We've moved this country forward in a relentless push
0: for... Oh, man. What, what are you going to say about this DNC? It's so weird. And and as much as I want to be harsh on it, as much as I want to be cruel to it, as much as I want to nitpick it and, and get uh, uh, gleeful every time they miss a cue or something's awkward or it's weird or they try to do the traditional convention pan the excited crowd shots but it's this awkward mega uh, hollywood squares zoom applause like here's my first thought this is hard and i'm gonna mute most of the snark that i have i mean if you've been watching our live streams uh, then obviously there's there's gonna be a little bit more of it in real time But for you guys, I like to collect my thoughts a little bit more for the podcast. And and let me just say, this could be worse. And more specifically, it could be worse if you took more bold ideas and they backfired. So playing it safe seems to be the name of the game for the Biden campaign. And while I am tempted to say that if you're gonna do things live, then do things live bringing bring in a small crowd of very famous people, people in the democratic luminary circles and and have it be a warm gathering of the elders and maybe some of the rising stars. or if you're going to pre-record it, make it super slick, gleaming spaceship get JJ. Abrams. Whatever J.J. Abrams is doing. Just say, look, you can you can uh, ruin another Star Wars movie any old day of the week. Come on and just do eight hours of this. There are plenty of Democrats in L.A. that could make this look amazing. I want to say that. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that because this is hard. It's Monday morning quarterbacking, and considering all the age and egos involved in the decisions here what we're seeing is probably the best thing you could hope for. Point number two. Man, does the Biden campaign want Republican votes. They have made a habit in these first two nights of talking to disaffected Republicans. They genuinely believe That a sitting president who regularly polls in the high 90s within his party is vulnerable to GOP defection because the Lincoln Project says so. John Kasich, Colin Powell, Meg Whitman have all gotten more prominent slots in these first two nights than some of the rising stars in the Democratic Party. We're gonna see in November exactly how well this pans out, but man, uh, uh I've nothing more to say. Uh, I-, I don't know. I-, I I genuinely don't know. I I, I just uh, my gut is that we're in a very polarized world where trying to reach over the aisle is very hard. There's a lot of uh, factors at play beyond the cult of personality of Trump. And while that is assuredly a major factor on the Democratic side, Trump got elected once when he had no governmental experience. I wonder whether or not trying so hard to talk to Republicans when you have X amount of time is the wisest choice. Specifically when you have a base that could continue to get more excited. All right, point three. And this is going to be a gripe. Here is an out and out gripe. First one was me saying all the snark I have, all the snark you might have in your head. Let's qualify it. Second one, uh, this is a this is a strategy. We're identifying a strategy. I don't know if it's going to be uh, a good or bad. Here is something that I think was bad. This is night one. Kasich spoke night one, the former Republican governor of Ohio who ran in the Republican primary against Donald Trump in 2016. They have him on, and he's literally standing at a crossroads, so you won't be lonely. And he's talking about how Republican, the proud Republican Party, the proud Republican Party uh, uh, needs to stand up and vote for Joe Biden. And that specifically, Joe Biden will not cave to the radical ideas of the progressives. And so when Donald Trump runs these ads saying that he's got radical left ideas, don't believe him. He doesn't. He's going to stand up to these guys. You can trust him, Republicans. I don't know how much time I would spend reaching out to Republicans. And also, here's another thing. Why Republicans? Say conservatives. Kasich's out here talking about how great the Republican Party is at the Democratic Convention. Uh, Sorry. On the Pepsi commercial, even if it's going to end with you saying, now I drink Pepsi, don't say... I've loved Coke my entire life. Coke is the best. When I think about a a refreshing beverage, I think of Coke. But now I drink Pepsi. For now. Because I'm very upset with where Coke's bottle design is right now. Eventually, I will probably go back to drinking Coke. But Pepsi, friends, join me. Like, that just seems weird. Say conservatives. uh, uh, Decent, hard-working Americans. Whatever... The verbiage you need. Within minutes, they bring on Bernie Sanders. Who I think did an admirable job of pitching Biden as a partner for the progressive left. Which undercuts both of their messages. Because now Kasich, like, uh, okay, you literally just told us seconds ago that Biden was going to stand up to this guy. And now this guy is telling his people, oh, don't worry, like Biden's not as progressive as we need him to be. But we he will be a, a good faith partner to us. We will work with him to get what we need. So they immediately contradict each other. And then the headliner is Michelle Obama, who recites the epic poem of the golden Obama years. Now, in the process of doing this show, I read and talk to a lot of conservatives. I read and talk to a lot of progressives. Man, I'll tell you, they do not agree on much. You want to know what they do agree on? That the Obama years were overhyped and overrated. Duh! It just seems like a weird combination is all. One that could have been thought out better. If I were organizing it, the Monday morning quarterbacking, blah, blah, blah. If I were were organizing it, I would have put Michelle Obama first. Hot start. Welcome to the Democratic National Convention. Big speaker right off the top. In the middle of it, I would have had the if you are Republican, please listen to me block with Meg Whitman credited as the former CEO of HP, not the CEO of failing video service, Queeby, for the record. And then it would have ended with Bernie. And this just might be a, a fundamental difference in how I look at Joe Biden's challenge to get elected versus the Biden campaign does. But I would spend more time Having big names on the progressive side explain why they should be not tolerant, excited to vote for Joe Biden. Bernie did that. But there still is work to be done, which brings us into the big issue that engulfed Twitter last night.
1: Good evening. Bienvenidos. And thank you to everyone here today endeavoring towards a better, more just future for our country and our world.
0: All right. So let's dig into this AOC thing. That, of course, was her uh, lone appearance during this convention. To this point, she was chosen to second the nomination of Bernie Sanders during the roll call. This became controversial when NBC News tweeted something exceedingly stupid, quote, in one of the shortest speeches of the DNC, Representative Ocasio-Cortez did not endorse Joe Biden, quote, I hereby second the nomination of Sen- Senator Bernard Sanders of Vermont for president of the United States of America, end quote. Uh, AOC's speech was a minute 30, which is too short, but for reasons that we're going to get into in a minute. Obviously, NBC News should have known better. But since we're in a world where most people discovered politics even existed in 2016, I can understand where some people might have gotten confused watching their first full slate of convention coverage. So let's do a real quick recap of what you saw last night. See, a long, long time ago, the conventions weren't just a prepackaged coronation. They actually decided who the nominee was going to be. Primaries technically existed, but they weren't really utilized. And even if you ran in them, there weren't enough delegates that you could amass during the primaries to get you the nomination by the time the convention rolled around. So the stars of all party politics would gather at a convention and then try to glad hand and convince real people... To vote for them, the delegates that were there, that they had to place their votes for each of the candidates. And a lot of times this would take multiple, multiple, multiple ballots and it would get entrenched and some people would rise and fall. It was very, 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 very chaotic. It's also one that every blood-sucking journalist like me wishes still existed because it would make for a great story and we've all been reading books about this kind of stuff forever. It's the reason why you always hear pundits during a primary season talk about a brokered convention and you you can always just hear the like panting in their voice like, ah, you know, we might be headed to a Home brokered convention. Ah. They're all going from six to midnight. I'm telling you, it's just bred into you when you are a political journalist. You you just you, there's nothing you want more than to go back to a no holds barred, big old ugly four ballot convention. So the process you saw last night, again known as the roll call where we go from state to state to state. The great state of Florida, home of party rocking, passes four votes for Bernie Sanders, four for a dog wearing a bandana, and 50 to the next president of the United States, Joe Biden. That, so that used to be for real. That used to be an actual process. Now it's a ceremonial one. You know, it's kind of like the way a uh, parent gives their daughter away at a wedding. It's a nicer, sweet, ceremonial version of what used to happen, where, you know, you would sell your child to another family for, like, rugs or cattle or some stuff. So AOC is basically honoring Bernie Sanders right there. And again, in the past, there might have been actual suspense if the rest of the delegates... Uh, we're going to revolt and nominate him. But since we now have enough pledge delegates that are won during the primary system, the drama's existent AOC's role is superfluous. So beyond NBC tweeting something dumb, there is another reason why this was confusing to people. And that is... Because AOC is a massive star in her party, and it was confusing that she only got a minute 30 seconds when she didn't even help bridge the gap between young progressives and Biden. Which brings us to another tradition in the Democratic National Convention. The star spot. The moment when a young politician captivates the public with a stirring oration. The Democratic Party fetishizes this moment because it has helped produce two of their biggest stars. The first, in 1956, as he was angling for the vice presidential nomination on the disastrous Adelaide Stevenson ticket, was JFK. And let us be frank about the campaign in the days ahead. Our party will be up against two of the toughest most skilled campaigners in American political history. One who takes the high road, and one who takes the low road. Yep. But what we do here today affects more than a nomination, more than an election. It affects the lives and way of lives of all Americans. The next, while telling us how awesome John Kerry and John Edwards were, was a young Barack Obama in 2004. John Kerry calls on us to hope. John Edwards calls on us to hope. I'm not talking about blind optimism here. The almost willful ignorance that thinks unemployment will go away if we just don't think
1: about it, or health care crisis will solve itself if we just ignore it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something more substantial. It's the hope of slaves
0: sitting around a fire singing freedom songs. The hope of immigrants setting out for distant shores. The hope of a young naval lieutenant
1: bravely patrolling the Mekong Delta. The hope of a mill worker's son who dares to defy the odds. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too.
0: Both Kennedy and Obama attempted to bring youth and excitement to tickets that lacked it. Both are remembered longer than either of the tickets that they were promoting. If there were not an ideological war in the Democratic Party right now on star power alone, there is nobody close to AOC to get a spot like this, which is usually about 15 minutes on one of the early days, at the very least. In fact, this was kind of laid out. Here's how uh, AOC's role was described in an article uh, printed in The Hill on Monday entitled or the headline was eyes turn to Ocasio-Cortez as she seeks to boost Biden. Ocasio-Cortez is scheduled to speak Tuesday at the Democrats virtual convention, providing an unusual platform for a first term lawmaker and a self-described Democratic socialist who's often at odds with the party brass. A day later, she's set to address the same audience in a separate video segment. Now, I'm recording this on Wednesday morning, so she might speak tonight. There might be more AOC, more than literally just her ceremonially putting Bernie Sanders' name into an archaic ceremonial contention. But... As I look at who's listed as the headliners tonight, which includes Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, Elizabeth Warren, Gabby Giffords, and then your headliners, Kamala Harris and Barack Obama, I don't see AOC. She was listed last night, which leads me to my conspiracy theory. You want to know who did get a 15 minute speaking slot last night? Hi, hi. This is Senator Chuck Schumer, Democratic leader from my hometown, Brooklyn, New York, behind me. AOC is a a money machine, something the Biden campaign could have also harnessed. But she hasn't said she isn't going to primary the Senate minority leader Chuck Schumer from her home state of New York in 2022 when he could well be the Senate majority leader. My thought is maybe the Democratic establishment, while understanding the star power that AOC has doesn't want to shine her up too much before she starts gunning for their leadership. Politics. Stop that. Oh, Stop. baby. They call me Justin R Young, and by they I mean my parents when they named me. And normally that R stands for Robert, but this week and next week it stands for Running, Because I am running my ass off for you guys. Uh, 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 this is a big period. I, I, I'm never happier than when I got stuff to do. And boy, howdy, do I have a lot of it. Uh, uh, number one, it all happens because of you. I am able to stay home and cover this election as bizarre as it is because of you guys that head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I would have been there at these conventions. You know that. You guys know that. It killed me not to be there. But I am putting in as much, if not more, work to make up for it to you. Of course, if you're a patron, you get, uh, at at the $1 level, the custom RSS feed. Podcast episodes just get to you earlier. It's just the way that Patreon works. It goes faster than Apple faster than Spotify to your podcatcher. And especially when things change as fast as they do now, you want to make sure that for whatever commute you have, whatever little part of your day that you normally listen to this podcast, you get it ASAP. $3 level gets you two bonus podcasts. Ten dollar gets you the name at the end of the episode. Uh donor class, thank you, thank you, thank you as always. But that's not all I'm doing. I'm also writing the free political newsletter A free political newsletter each and every day with my recaps of each night as it goes along. And if that's not enough, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I am live with my regular politics chat that is on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. That is 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. On those days, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, twitch.tv slash Young. but also each and every night, I'm going live for another three to four hours covering this convention live for you guys. And if you haven't seen my smoky back room set, I think it's one of the coolest things that we have ever done in the history of the Politics, Politics, Politics brand writ large. I think it's super cool. I would love for you guys to join us as the heavy hitters come out tonight. Barack, Kamala, Biden, other people, Warren. Is she going to bring the dog? I don't know. But I will be there to talk about it. I'll be there to riot about it. I will be there to put it in your ear holes. And it's all because of you. Because you guys demanded it. You guys made sure it happened at takepoliticsseriously.com. Our guest today is Eliza Durana. She is a journalist and media strategist with the Eviction Lab, a research institute at Princeton University studying the causes, prevalence and effects of housing insecurity. Across the United States, we're going to talk about the looming eviction crisis. Uh, uh, Massive economic insecurity means we're going to have some housing insecurity. Let's talk to her. Welcome to the show, Aliza.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is obviously a a crazy, unprecedented moment in history uh, with the, the pandemic and otherwise uh, a functional economy being ground to a halt, the dangers to all of our healths and uh, an extended period of time where this has affected us. And one of the things that I have thought the most about is eviction, something that you are a expert on. So let's just get right to the big question. How uh, how how massive of an eviction crisis are we looking at?
1: You know, that's uh, the the million dollar question. Um, It's really tricky to say actually, because unfortunately um, no states or uh, the federal government are collecting this data. We're actually the only nationwide database that um, collects and studies uh, evictions as a whole across the United States, but it takes us a long time to collect that data. So, you know, there's some courts in the US where folks still keep paper records and we have to send a researcher to collect them. But what we know from 2020, actually, you know, we've set up a web scraper to collect the, you know, digitized records from now 17 sites where that's possible. Um, And we have counted at least 33,000 evictions since March 15th. Um, These are new cases that have uh, been filed across the 17 sites that we're tracking And, you know, given that we are now facing what I think of as a triple failure, uh, we don't have a moratorium, we do not have, you know, rental assistance, uh, we also have an executive order that does nothing, you know, this is really leaving renters in the lurch and uh, the eviction lab is very concerned that come, you know, September 1st, we we're going to be seeing many, many more experiences of eviction and possibly homelessness in the absence of government intervention.
0: What is the normal rate of attrition when it comes to evictions? Like if we are trying to measure it against a baseline, 33,000 obviously sounds like an insane number now to, to uh, think that there will be much, much more than that is very scary. But in general, if we're trying to keep a, a sense of what normal evictions are, what will we see in a normal year?
1: Sure. So just I think to put that 33,000 number into context a little bit, you know, those are all new filings that have occurred since March. Yeah. You know, those filings also occurred during a period in which, you know, if you were lucky in some states, you might have some protections. So, you know, it's probably a very conservative estimate of, you know, we're also only collecting data in 17 sites. We do not have data for the full U.S. right now. So, that is really the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we're able to see and study in the U.S. at this point in time. But that being said, uh, the, the United States was already in the midst of a housing crisis when COVID-19 hit um, as late as 2016, when unemployment was under 5%. We saw 3.7 million filings, and which comes to about seven filings per minute. So wow. uh, there is a there is a distinction between you know filings and judgments. Um, we see fewer judgments than we see eviction filings, but unfortunately, you know the filing itself, even if the judge, the judge you know finds in favor of a tenant, you know just being filed against um, has you know traumatic repercussions for the tenant in question. So um, that is you know far far many more uh, evictions than than should be happening.
0: Obviously, this is an issue that varies state by state. Uh, uh, I am broadcasting out of the Bay Area, which is uh, known to have stronger protector uh, protections for renters. Uh, are there any areas of the country that are kind of notorious for, for not having those protections, or are there areas of the country where we could see more evictions because there are, are less guardrails?
1: Absolutely. So. Often when we talk about housing, we think of gentrification in places like the Bay Area or New York or DC, where I'm from. But actually, you know, the reason that we're in the midst of a housing crisis is, you know, far bigger than you know any one of those metro areas. Um, We've now seen nearly three decades of wage stagnation and rent increases across the United States. So also in the Midwest and South, and the Eviction Lab has actually found that. the highest rates of eviction that we see in our data, which is not perfect, but you know it's the best that we best have. Best we can do, yeah. Um, the best we can do is that the highest rates of eviction are often in places like the, the American South, uh, the Midwest, and the Rust Belt, so places that we think of as great migration states. Um, it's very much tied to the legacy, of both historical and modern, of racial segregation in our housing market and policies. Um, so often, you know, we'll see higher uh, eviction filing rates in uh, in cities or, or towns um, or even rural areas where uh, the barriers to a landlord filing are quite low. So there are parts of the U.S. where a landlord need only f- like pay $30 to file an eviction. Um, and so we often will see, you know, the same landlord and tenant pairs showing up in court multiple times, you know, if, if the tenant is one day late, then the eviction, the, the landlord will almost automatically file an eviction. Um, so as we think about how to dismantle the, the housing crisis, um, we must absolutely reckon with the history of racial injustice and, and how that has really shaped our housing market and policies in the United States.
0: How long has the eviction lab been around?
1: We are, the Eviction Lab is a young organization, so we uh, were founded in 2017, we launched publicly in 2018, and we are an outgrowth of my colleague, uh, Professor Matt Desmond's dissertation research. Um, in tw- 2008, he, you know, began studying the eviction crisis in Milwaukee and found that it was a much, much more widespread problem than, uh, than most folks had ever realized, and so um, he, you know, with a ragtag team of, of other researchers uh, <laughs> set out to found the eviction lab and and create this first uh, nationwide database of eviction. Uh,
0: how how far back? I mean, uh, obviously, you guys have only been operating uh, for, you know, probably less than three years. Uh, so I, I, I don't uh, I I don't imagine it would be much. But how how far into history can you even comb on some of this data? Or is this stuff that you got to catch in the moment and. From From now on, we'll have better data, but it's hard to look back into the past and understand a uh, uh, historical context on this.
1: You know uh, there are you know, as with any data collection, there like we face a lot of challenges um, in collecting data on evictions, cataloging it. It really depends on what part of the country we're in, given that the federal government does not um, collect clean you know, uh, or catalog these sorts of records. So um, on our website, we have publicly available data for between 2000 and 2016 right now, and then limited data for the year 2020. Um, We're hoping to release 2017 and 2018 data soon. um, But the the majority of our data is from the year 2000 and onwards. So we have nearly two decades of, uh, of eviction records right now.
0: What are the trends you see from that?
1: You know, I mean, one thing that a couple of things. So uh, we know that um, families with children are disproportionately likely to be affected by an eviction. Uh, families experiencing domestic violence as well. Um, often landlords will use, you know, nuisance orders to remove uh, tenants that they deem unruly. So this may be, again, you know, a family with uh, a rambunctious child, or you know, someone experiencing gender-based violence. Um, we also know that uh, Black moms, in particular, are uh, you know disproportionately affected by the eviction crisis, um, and and also we know that uh, you know rental profits are often concentrated in our lowest-income neighborhoods, uh, where a mortgage is most likely to have already been paid off. Uh, So I think one of the things, one of the things we get asked the most often is, you know, have evictions increased over time? And uh, the truth of the matter is, is that this housing crisis has been ongoing, you know, in a fairly steady way since the year 2000. Mm -hmm. We saw a slight change uh, around the Great Recession, um, but that the trend has stayed pretty stable. So it's really, you know, it's been this deep and pervasive issue across American society that has Disproportionately affected um, tenants of color, particularly Black tenants and women tenants, um, but not exclusively. And you know, it's not a red or blue state issue. We see it across the U.S. Uh, we also see it in rural and suburban areas. So you know, it is our hope that with this research and data collection, we can um, help address the the causes uh, of this widespread problem
0: when somebody is evicted and this might be outside of your purview so we can we can move on if it is but when somebody is evicted is there any kind of percentage rate of them becoming homeless or or uh let's say moving in with a a friend or or family member like do we know how many people uh immediately go from eviction to the streets or their car
1: yeah i don't have an exact number but i can give you sort of a description of like a typical typical experience yeah yeah
0: absolutely yeah
1: if a family were evicted today um, if they were lucky they may end up doubling up with friends or family which uh, given that we're also experiencing a public health crisis uh, we know for instance that a lot of uh, the viral transmission of COVID-19 is through household units yeah so that you know wouldn't be ideal, but is certainly better than the alternative, which is that you know people who are less like lucky may end up uh, going into a homeless shelter, living out of their car on the street, um, and that is you know concerning for a different set of reasons. Um, most I mean most directly that neither our court system nor homeless shelters are set up to support social distancing. You. Uh, Sit shoulder to shoulder in a in, in a housing court. You also sleep shoulder to shoulder in a in a homeless shelter. And, you know, while they're an important part of our safety net, they were overburdened prior to the arrival of COVID-19. Um, and folks experiencing homelessness are disproportionately at risk for upper respiratory infections as well. So, you know, we're both concerned about the health of folks who are at risk of an eviction, but also for the health and well-being of folks who are already experiencing homelessness. Um, the other thing that, the other reason that, you know, eviction is so devastating is that uh, an eviction is reported to credit bureaus, so it often will ruin a person or a family's credit. Um, people who have been evicted will often, you know, even if they've won the the case in court, get they will often get placed on a list of undesirable tenants. So they um, may have a hard time in addition to the the credit issues, they may have a hard time finding a new place to live following an eviction. So often families end up in lower quality housing where, you know, the housing might be substandard. There might be a pest issue. There might be a lead issue. uh, But that is the best that that families can find following an eviction. You know, it it absolutely is also an adverse childhood experience. So it affects uh, children's ability to learn, um, you know, make loving, caring attachments, both within and outside of their family and to, to do well in school. Um, and it also affects rates of anxiety, depression and suicidal ideation in both in adults. Um, so we know that you know, mothers that experience an eviction often experience symptoms of depression for up to two years after the eviction. So you know, I think right now as we're considering how many people lost a job through no fault of their own um, they be made April rent, but are struggling to make May or June rent, or July or August, now that we're uh, at August 12th today. Um, the, the virus still has not been cured. We uh, The economic crisis is not yet gone. And so we're concerned that this could ultimately, you know, hurt an entire generation of uh, folks in our society and their children as well, as well as potentially, you know, um, increase the spread of COVID-19 in the coming weeks and months.
0: So I'm sure what a lot of people are thinking right now are, are going to be reforms, right? What, what, what can we do? What is effective? Do you see in your research laws or reforms that are more effective by the numbers than uh, than others?
1: Sure. So, uh, with the important caveat that we're a nonprofit research institute and our we do we do not lobby and we're, sure. we're barred from yeah. commenting on ongoing legislation. Um, that being said, there are a couple of there are several policies out there that, coupled together, could be very effective. So, the first is that you know we absolutely need comprehensive eviction moratoria in place across the United States. And this um, this, this is this
0: is for saw, this is for COVID for for this particular situation.
1: This is for this particular situation. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. So um, right now we do not need people forced out of their homes, um, both because it would be bad for that family, but also because it would be bad for public health. Um, in states where you know we saw uh, a governor or a Supreme Court you know, put into place a comprehensive eviction ban. So, meaning that they they froze the filing of evictions, they froze the court process, and they froze enforcement of that process. Um evictions have been quite quite low. So the the it's an important stopgap measure so that, you know, folks can shelter in place and the courts and homeless shelters do not become a source of contagion for the yeah. virus.
0: Uh how many uh how that many makes, states did that?
1: Yeah. Uh, relatively few. And now, uh, I think that there are now like 30 states that have no protections in place. Gotcha. Um, so this is changing on an almost weekly basis, but um, most states in the United States and do not have a moratorium in effect. And the federal moratorium expired on July 25th. So as it stands, there are few places where there's a comprehensive ban in place. Um, and many of those orders are set to expire at the end of August or in September as well.
0: And, the, and that federal moratorium uh, came from Congress, right?
1: Yes. The federal moratorium came down through the CARES Act. Gotcha. Um, but it was quite limited, actually. It only covered an estimated one-third of uh, rental units, um, and it only covered either uh, properties with federally backed mortgages, yeah. so if you have a mortgage from Fannie or Freddie, or um, publicly subsidized housing. Um, so we think that that's about 25 to 40 percent of the rental market so relatively few uh, renters um, so even though a moratorium is important in this moment um, it doesn't solve the the fundamental question of like how are folks gonna pay the rent yeah you know, the jobs are gone they have not come back how do you make ends meet right now so in response to that you know we uh, we suggest that like that Congress in particular, think about a range of options, because this is actually much bigger than, you know, what any individual city or state could have the budget for right now, especially since um, no one other than the federal government has the ability to go into debt. So uh, if we think about, for instance, uh, you know, continuing to expand unemployment insurance and the supplement, you know, that was very meaningful for many people across the United States. You know, we could certainly legislate uh, rental assistance in a very like generous and ongoing manner. We could also think about you know uh, providing you know direct cash payments to families across the United States in the way that you know our Canadian neighbors and like folks across Europe have done to make sure that people can pay their rent or their mortgage, pay for food, and safely shelter in place. Um, and then the third you know the third policy uh, that you know we at the eviction level I'd like to draw attention to is that you know in seeing the scope of this eviction crisis you know now is a window of opportunity for us to fundamentally rethink and reshape um, how we define justice as it relates to matters of housing so most people don't know this but housing is actually a matter uh, adjudicated in civil court not criminal court and the reason that that matters is because in the United States, you're only guaranteed a right to counsel in criminal court. So most tenants do not have representation in housing court if they're facing an eviction, but most landlords do. Uh, it creates a huge power imbalance um, between, you know, tenants and property owners, uh, and it also allows for, let's say, like less good property owners to get away with um, harassment or, you know, providing substandard housing. So um, you know, between sort of like material assistance, moratoria, and also like rethinking, you know, whether and how evictions should ever occur in our justice system. Those are sort of three areas that we're thinking about at this point in time.
0: What you often hear out here in the Bay Area is uh, obviously there there are arguments about uh, uh, you know strong rental protections and uh, uh, trying to drive down evictions, but also that part of this is a supply and demand issue that that uh, restrictions on building and specifically building multifamily homes is too uh, uh, restrictive. And that's part of the reason why we continue to see a housing crisis and rent go up and, and people not be able to afford it. Uh, how much of this is the fact that uh, they're especially in in cities that have kind of exploded or worked bloating population wise who knows exactly what happens with COVID going forward that the that, that part of this is that there's just not enough places for peace, people to live, uh, with an, a wide enough economic strata.
1: You know, I mean, that's, it, it's a good question. And, uh, to be honest, we actually don't see that born out in our data specifically okay. as related to eviction. So I want to like, be clear just because, um, that's not to say that you know gentrification isn't an issue in the Bay Area or uh, that difficulties in producing multifamily housing don't exist. But as far as we can tell uh, from eviction data from between 2000 and 2016, and and also uh, brief data from 2020, you know the the highest rates of eviction in this country are not in like big metro areas. Yeah. Like you are relatively better off being a tenant in San Francisco or New York than you are in Montgomery, Alabama, for instance. Gotcha. Um, there are places, or frankly, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, you know, Milwaukee or a place like St. Louis, Missouri, these are not cities where housing is scarce, um, but it they are places where we can clearly see that um, there is a lack of Uh, affordable, high quality, low income housing. Um, And that, you know, rent prices have far uh, exceeded sort of the rate of growth of of wages across the United States. So like, certainly like, like we are researching as well, like issues like gentrification, um, you know, migration in and out of cities. Uh, But given that we know that, you know, eviction is disproportionately concentrated in places like the south and the midwest where we wouldn't normally think of uh folks getting you know pushed out or like restrictive lo- uh, zoning laws per se um there are probably more forces at work than than we realize
0: yeah uh, uh well I, I want to thank you so much for for coming on and educating us about uh, this issue. It is something that that i've I've thought of since the, the the moment this pandemic hit uh just knowing how much a lot of people live uh, paycheck to paycheck and uh holy moly have we gone many paychecks between when I first had that thought so i, 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 I yeah. thank you guys uh, for for doing it. Uh, can you please let uh, uh, folks know where they can get access to some of your data?
1: absolutely so uh, if you are interested in learning more about eviction in your city or state uh, our data can be downloaded at evictionlab.org and for those of you who may like be struggling with an eviction yourself um, we host a sister site called just shelter it is a database of social legal services um, that we've categorized by geography so if you're looking for pro bono uh, legal assistance or other sorts of uh, grassroots support, I would urge you to take a look there. Um, and yeah, lastly, I just wanna say, I mean, for, for people in your audience, like if you know someone who's been affected by COVID or has suffered an income uh, or job loss, it's not your fault. Um, you know, And now is absolutely the moment that we need to, to be discussing this and, and pushing for change. So thank you so much for having me on.
0: Absolutely. And of course, uh, we have just heard from Aliza Durana, a journalist and media strategist uh, with the Eviction Lab Research Institute at Princeton University, where they study the causes, prevalence and effects of housing insecurity across the United States. Aliza, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And that will wrap it up for us today. Uh, Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to everybody who supports us at Take Politics Seriously. Dot com. Again, $3 Club gets you two bonus episodes each and every week. A reminder twitch.tv Justin R. Young is where you can catch all of our convention coverage, not only for the Democrats for the next two nights, but also for the Republicans next week. And uh, follow me on social at Justin R. Young on Twitter, at Justin R. Young on Instagram. Even if uh, you ain't got time, For uh, the live streams, you can catch some of the clips. I've been posting some of the clips on my social media. So uh, if you want to just get a sense of what it looks like, you can go over to my social media and look at it right there. Also, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. We are, uh, man, another, a daily recap for free. I tell you, I'm working, working for you folks. I'm also working for our Titanic $10 tier Modesto Zone, Logan, Cisco, NH Blumpkin, Chad, Headphones Neil Water Ice Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger, Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zack and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Barkley, Steven, your boy Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D-Laser, I Poop My Pants, Just Another Pilot, Alex Mitchell, Severio Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry Tolbert, Andrus, Archie, J. Milius, The Jen, The Crap in My Pants, Olin and Angela, Olin and Angela D.L., Brian, uh, Brian, he's just named Brian. Uh, uh, I Ibootmypants.com, Miranda, Robert, Glenn Wolf, Brand Chili Scoop, Richard, J. Pink, and Andrew Main. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. Join at the $10 tier. Big headliners tonight, baby. Big headliners tonight. The debut of VP nominee Kamala Harris on the big stage. Why is Obama headlining? Why did Michelle Obama headline over Bernie? And why is Barack Obama headlining over Kamala? Like they ain't running. Yeah, they're bigger stars, but you want to build. You want to, this is about now. It's just kind of confusing. All right. Uh, 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 Catch us all those other places. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this is the only show that talks about hole three. hopes you have enjoyed this program.